0: Happy Easter, uh, everyone. If you guys are here, happy Easter. Uh, Restored your home church. Uh, I want to say happy Easter to you, family. Uh, for Restored is, is not a place you normally would come to or anything like that. We want to say welcome. We're pumped you're here uh, to celebrate Easter with us. So um, you really are a guest, and please make yourself uh, feel at home as much as you um, feel comfortable doing that. So uh, Easter is a big day. Uh, By the way, if you guys have been with our church uh, the last few weeks or months, we'll be going through a series in Paul's letter to the Romans, the epistle to the Romans, a really famous letter in the New Testament. So if you guys have Bibles you want to turn there, uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 3. And uh, and today we're going to look at um, kind of the heart of Easter or the why behind Easter. Um, Easter is a day uh, It's a day of the church calendar where followers of Jesus from all over the world and a lot of uh, different churches celebrate the fact that Jesus did not just die on a cross, but that he rose from the dead in victory. Um, but I don't know if you've ever asked this question, why is that good news? Uh, gospel means good news. Why is that good news? And it's because his resurrection, like his death like the the life he lived before he died, like his birth before that, accomplishes something for us, is what the scriptures teach. Um, That there was a purpose to Jesus' birth, his life, his teaching, his death, and of course, his resurrection. You see, Jesus came to reconcile us to God. The storyline of the scripture is one of creation, that God in love creates humanity But but, but it moves from creation to betrayal, that we betrayed God. We said we wanted to do our own thing and that he has come to redeem us. And one day he will make all things right. There will be a complete restoration that has not happened yet. And so the storyline of scripture is that we were created to know God and to love God, to know and love one another. And instead, we decided as the human race to reject God as the ruler over our lives, like Sarah just talked about, that we thought there was freedom and doing whatever we wanted, but, but freedom is actually living into the purpose we were designed for. It's not freedom to put gasoline into a Tesla. You can do that if you want to, uh, but it's not freedom. Uh, you're not going to you're not gonna thrive. Your car is not going to do what it's supposed to do. And in the same way, we were like, we're going to do our own thing. And like foolish, ungrateful children who reject the wisdom and loving counsel of good parents, to pursue a life of pain that could have been avoided. That's what we did. We said, we don't want you, God. We want to do our own thing. We want to live a life on our terms. And ever since then, and Paul laid this out through Romans, but you don't need to know anything about Romans. If you haven't been here for that, it's fine. Um, The story of human history tells us that that has not worked out for us. It hasn't over the years, and it's not today. You can read the Bible, but you can also read any news blog to see that humanity is fundamentally broken. And what scripture says is the reason that we're broken is that we are cut off from our source and we have moved away from our purpose, that, 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 that we, are, we were designed to receive love from a creator and then give that love away to one another. And instead, we have turned in on ourselves where what we want to do is take. We don't have a love to receive, so now we look to others and we, and we take what we want at the expense of loving God and others. And again, because of that, we have made a mess of the world. This is all throughout the world. This is the bad news that sets up the good news. We were created, for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. We were created to use resources to bless one another and take care of one another and make the world an inhabitable, beautiful place. Um, But instead, our, our world's economies often point to the exploitation of one another. And that happens both in in free markets and in centralized oppressive governments, kind of communist regimes or whatever, that that, that, that economies often find a way to end up being unjust. Or the fact that we were created to enjoy God's gifts and use them in a way that he designed them to be used. You think about something like our sexuality, that sex is a gift from God designed as a way to demonstrate a commitment to and build intimacy with another over the course of a lifetime. But we have often used that gift in a way that dehumanizes. We see it in, in its most extreme forms, in assault or abuse, but it, but it happens all the time through, through random hookups and, and stuff like that. We're in a mixed gathering with kids. I'm doing my best here. Sex is a gift designed to create more togetherness. It's often the thing that we use to pull people apart. We see that with things like adultery. Sex is designed to make someone feel seen, known, and loved, but it's often used to make us feel anonymous and discardable, which is often what non-committed sex makes us feel. And so money, money and sexuality are not the only things that have, uh, that have not worked when we use them in our way instead of God's way. Um, God is, has given humanity delegated power to cultivate the world we live in and make it a place of order and beauty and life. But instead, we often use power um, to control people. Throughout human history, whoever has power has often used it to oppress. And it knows no bounds politically. It doesn't really care uh, what the, the platform is of the person. It's the heart of the person. And you'll find that often whoever has power often wants to maintain that power. Um, Instead of stewarding and cultivating the gift of this planet, for example, humanity is fine polluting and pillaging, using our power not to create order and beauty, but to cause destruction. Um, Often, too, as humanity, we've never been content with our level of power, which is why nations are constantly at war, where there's someone overstepping their boundaries, wanting more power. They want to control others and then another nation seeking to defend themselves. I just got back from South Africa, a country that is on a continent that has been ravaged by colonialism, which is the desire of one group of people to have more power and more stuff. And we can go on and on and on throughout human history. Everything our dirty human hands has touched has turned to death, has turned to the unraveling of what this world can and should be, what it was designed to be. That is the problem of the world we live in. Now, Paul says that everything that is wrong with this world can trace its origins back to that moment when we as the human race were disconnected from our creator and our purpose. At that moment, our hearts were corrupted and a curse overtook our world that impacts every part of our life. And so if the source of all of our problems is the fact that we have been alienated from our creator, the source of wisdom, goodness, love, beauty, and order, then the solution is likely that we should be reconciled to that creator. Now, Paul is not naive saying that, that that's a spiritual answer to physical problems, but he is saying that if the spiritual answer is dealt with, the physical problems will work themselves out, or that they should that if we receive love and we receive the generosity of God, that we would become people who love and are generous with others. And that collectively, as humanity does that, the world absolutely would look like a place we do want to live. But how can we be reconciled? I mean, we've made a mess of everything. How can we in this world be made right again? And so far in Romans, Paul has just finished reminding the Roman church that all of humanity is in this mess and that we cannot get out of it ourselves. We cannot fix it ourselves. Also, this cursed world isn't just something that we have just been born into. You might go, man, um, if, I, if I was Adam or whatever, I was Eve or, or I, uh, uh, if God restarted with me, this place would look pretty dope. It would be uh, full of life and vitality and joy and health because I'm amazing. But what I hate to tell you is, is that you weren't just born into this. You have contributed to this system that we live in. Uh, In the 1900s, uh, the the early 1900s, the newspaper, the Times of London, asked the following question of the people of London. It asked, what is wrong with the world? The philosopher G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter to the editor. It was short, but it it said this. It says, what is wrong with the world, you ask? Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And so the idea is that if God makes the world right and brings justice He makes the world what it is supposed to be. It is going to involve punishing the guilty, and we know that, right? Take the Bible out of it and spiritual stuff out of it. And we know that when there has been a wrong that has been committed, it is not a good thing to go, ah, no big deal. And so the problem with God making things right in this world is that we are all guilty, and we know it, which is why we tear others down to feel better about ourselves. John mentioned this a few weeks weeks ago, the idea of uh, whataboutism or comparison, that all of us, if we're honest, we, we rarely say it out loud, although sometimes we do. We have someone, every human has this, by the way. I don't care uh, age, race, gender, class, whatever you want to do, wherever you work, whatever industry you're in, whatever political affiliation you have, um, what we're addicted to is going, at least I'm not like those people. And we all, who those people are is different for all of us, if you're honest. You're like, at least I'm not like that guy. And this happens from small to little. The other day, um, uh, my buddy Jimmy uh, was helping me with something, and we got coffee. Uh, and I said, man, I think I'm going to get another coffee. He's like, whoa, bro. What are you going to have, like three today? Look at you. Uh, he didn't say look at you, by the way, but he was like, dude, you're going to have three today. I'm worried about your heart. And uh, I go, yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I said, lately, dude, honestly, I've been having like two, max out three on like really long days. Um, and then he goes, you know what? Um, he's like, you know what, though, man, I've been, um, I've been doing coffee, but like later in the day, dude, I, I feel kind of – I'm like an old man, dude. I've been, I've been I'm drinking energy drinks at the end of the day. And I was like, you're what? You're judging me for coffee? You put energy drinks in your body? Right? That self-righteousness just kicked up. It's my best friend, and I'm judging him for energy drinks. We are petty, insecure, self-righteous people by nature. Again, we all have a group of people that we like to say, thank God I'm not like them what's going on politically, right? Conservatives do it to progressives. Progressives do it to conservatives. Nations do it to each other. Um, And people who claim to be Christians uh, also, if they don't understand what I'm going to talk about today, the heart of the gospel, they will be um, very insecure. And insecure people are self-righteous. Again, I'm not secure in who I am, so I have to tear others down to feel better about self. Um, The other way we try to deal with the fact that we cannot make ourselves right with God is by doing good things, hoping that our good deeds can pay off the penalty we deserve for our bad deeds. And Paul has laid out very clearly, Royce talked about it last week, the fact that there is no way we can make ourselves right with God, that there are no amount of good deeds or obedience to God can make up for all the ways we have desecrated his world and hurt the people he created for us to love. So at this point in Romans, we see God doesn't judge on a scale that all of humanity deserves to be judged for what we have contributed to this world, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation, moral record, or anything else. And we also know that we cannot make ourselves right with God by what we do. That's what humanity has in common. And so this leads to a big question. How does God judge the wrong things that have been done in this world by us and still find a way to reconcile with us, which seems to be if, if that goes right, everything would change. Again, we don't wanna judge who lets abuse or assault or racism or war crimes or injustice or murder or those who destroy families to go unpunished, but our hearts are also full of all the things that make those things possible. One theologian said that that um, uh, all, all the seed, the seeds for every type of sin are in our hearts. They're just waiting to be watered, which is like, whoa. That given the right circumstances and the right context, that you and I could become the types of people who do the, the most evil things. And by the way, sociological research bears that out. Terrible times of war, or genocide, or injustice. Often people who look pretty normal can be complicit and even... Um, pretty active participants in some some awful things. And so, um, so we, um, right, we don't want a God who doesn't care about those things, but, but we also do not want to be judged. We don't want to be alienated from God. That all of us want justice, just not for ourselves. Justice for the bad people, grace for this bad person is kind of where we are at. And so at this point in Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, we should all feel the weight of the predicament we are in. One scholar said we should feel like we are drowning in our sin and alienation from God, that humanity has a real problem. He says, we're, we're drowning out in the middle of the ocean. We don't need swimming lessons to get to shore. We need to be rescued. And a rescue is precisely what God offers. So if you guys have um, Bibles, we're going to start today in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. I think this will be a mercifully short message, okay? So we'll move through this and then re- remember. Jesus. So so Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and right before this, Paul has been laying out the facts that we are in need, that we're in trouble, that because we are not right with God, we've made a mess of this world, and we are stuck. But then verse 21 says something really, really important. It says, but now, say that with me, one, two, three, but now, One more time. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested to by the law and the prophets. And that but now is one of the biggest turns in all of the scripture. This but now in this text signals a reversal of fortunes, like a dead man rising from the dead. Or the sight of a rescue ship that has thrown you a line when you thought you were going to drown. But now... A rescue is here. It's like you're uh, on a terrible basketball team, right? You're, you're hanging out in Michigan Bay, you're playing basketball all day and you're just getting dominated. Your team is terrible. And all of a sudden LeBron James shows up. He's like, hey, I'd love to play some pickup with you guys. And I wanna be on your team, right? That would change everything, right? That's a reversal of fortunes. What's happened to this point no longer matters. So Paul is saying, but now there is a way to be made right with God, and it's not based on your performance. It's not obeying the law. There is a way to be rescued that isn't based on your ability to swim. There's a way to win basketball games, even though you are a terrible teammate. How are you made right with God? How can we be reconciled to God if it's not through our performance? Verse 22 says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's for all who believe. Again, everyone needs this. We have all made a mess of our lives when we try to do our own thing, but we all have access to someone we should not have access to, friends. Verse 24 says, they are justified freely by his grace, the redemption that is in Christ." Jesus. That being made right with God is a gift he offers us. It is free to us. So a couple important theological words here I need to define real quick. One is righteousness. And righteousness has to do with the idea of getting right with someone or something. And in this text, it's with God. If we are made right with God, the other things will follow. Righteousness has to do with getting right with God. It's a legal standing that none of us have naturally. One scholar describes righteousness this way. The very word right tells us it is a legal standing. A guiding question here is what does it mean to get right with a person or an institution or right with the law? To be right with a person or an institution is a legal standing in which you owe them nothing, to have no liabilities or claims against you, to be right with a law is to be completely obedient to it so it cannot charge you. So to be right with God would mean to be in a condition of complete obedience to, oh, God, nothing that he commands because you fulfilled it all. Righteousness is a legal standing that is a result of perfect behavior. So that is righteousness. The problem is, is we don't have perfect behavior. I don't know if you've caught that, right? So how does this work? Which leads to our second word we need to define, which is faith, right? Paul says the righteousness of God is through faith. Now, Maria Orta, uh, where's Maria at? I don't know, right, whatever. She's gonna preach uh, a sermon next week on faith in Romans 4, an entire sermon on faith. Uh, So I don't wanna spend too much time on this, um, but faith is synonymous with trust in the New Testament. Faith's only value is what it is based in, okay? Who you trust in, not just that you trust. What do you call a person who trusts anyone? Gullible, right? Naive, right? Um, There is no salvation in trusting the wrong person. A matter of fact, there could be a lot of pain if you trust the wrong person. If you get in the wrong car with the wrong person and and trust them to drive you home, you give the wrong person access to your finances, right? Uh, It's not trust, it's not faith that saves us, right? It's the object of our faith, who we are trusting in. Another way to look at it, I don't know why I thought of this, but as I was preparing this message, I thought of, like, um, in, like, Lord of the Rings or something, but, like, someone uh, who has, like, a healing elixir, right? So someone's, like, going to die, and they're like, man, drink this, right? Do you guys remember the cartoon Gummy Bears? Does anyone remember that from, like, 20, anyway, right, boom, we got, Ethan's with me. On the show, I just remember there, there was, like, a wizard guy on the show, and he was always concocting. It's kind of the gummy bear shaman, um, but, but he was always concocting, you know, natural remedies and and kind of, I don't know, maybe he was a witch. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't uh, promote, whatever. Uh, but but he, but he always had this, like, little, like, uh, mini beaker he would hand them. And he's like, drink this, right? And they would drink it, and then they could bounce uh, like gummy bears, bouncing here and there and everywhere. Um, but anyways, imagine, uh, you know, a healing elixir. Um, that elixir uh, would be contained in a cup or a bottle of some type, right? Now, we've all, we've been, there's really, there there are kind of lame cups, right? Kind of red solo cups or whatever. There are really beautiful cups at a really nice restaurant. Kind of everything in between. Now, what matters less is what the cup looks like, but what's in the cup. Um, And so faith is like the cup that contains the elixir. The cup isn't what heals you. Catch that. Having an empty prescription bottle doesn't help you if you need the prescription that's supposed to be in there. In the same way, faith doesn't save us. It's just the instrument we use to access our faith. This is the way I am imbibing or taking in this healing elixir. Faith is is, is trust. It's how I receive being right with God because of Jesus, because Jesus, in my place, lived the perfect life that I could never live. He died a death in my place, and he rose again in victory to prove that he paid my penalty and he has made me right with God in an instant. And it's not my obedience. It's not my rule keeping. It's not um, it, I'm made righteous as if I accept that. I mean, faith is saying, I'm trusting you to pay my penalty. I'm trusting you to provide for me that, that which I do not possess in my own person. Um, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, the boat, right? You're, you're out there drowning. It's saying, I'm trusting. I'm going to get on this boat and it's going to take me home safely. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a uh, famous uh, Welsh preacher, uh, Westminster Chapel back in the day, uh, one of the most famous preachers who ever lived, he described faith that receives righteousness this way. He says, we can put it this way. A person who has faith is the person who is no longer looking at themselves, And no longer looking at themselves. they no longer look at anything they once were. They do not look at where they are now. They do not even look at what they hope to be as a result of their own efforts. They look entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and they rest on that alone. They have ceased saying, Ah, yes, I have committed terrible sins, but at least I have not done this and that sin. In other words, they've stopped comparing. Lloyd-Jones continues, they stop saying that. If they go on saying that, they have not got faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes someone say, yes, I have sinned grievously. I have lived a life I ought not to have lived, yet I know that I am a child of God because I am not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ, and God has put that to my account. And so it's a, it's, it's a righteousness we receive. So what happens when we are made righteous because of Jesus? is actually leads to our next word, this word justified. This word justified. Um, uh, justification, uh, the concept of justification that we're familiar with uh, was really popularized most recently uh, when Martin Luther launched the Protestant Reformation. If you guys know about that, it was about 500 and some odd years ago. And in that day, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day taught that justification was a process whereby God would make you righteous over time. He he'd kind of infuse you with his righteousness. He wouldn't impute it to you. Um, so over time, and so they had these sacraments, you know, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, last rites, all these different sacraments. And that through observing the sacraments and confession and doing good, you would become a righteous, a righteous enough person that God would declare you Justified. A lot of people think this is still what Christianity is today. They might change the rules. They might not be sacraments. It's like don't get drunk, don't have premarital sex, read your Bible, go to church most weeks, and give uh, maybe 4% of your income, right? And, you, and you'll be you'll – be, they, they thought there was a process of justification. And at that time, they actually taught, and it still do at some level, um, that if you weren't righteous enough at the time of your death, that you would go to purgatory, and the idea of purgatory is purging. So your sin would be purged out uh, through a time of suffering, and then you'd be righteous. But Luther pointed out that, that that's not what the word justified means. And it's not how ju- and, right, justification is a legal declaration that happens all at once. Justification is not a process where, whereby we become righteous. Justification is a pronouncement that we are declared righteous all at once. And imagine a courtroom if they were like, hey, you're kind of uh, innocent of the charges right? We're going to work this thing out over time. No, it's it's you are, you aren't. And if you're guilty, then you've got to work stuff out. Justification does not refer um, to the transformation of the heart, by the way, becoming like Jesus, which we're about. We love that. We want you to become like Jesus. But that's sanctification, the, the, the progressively becoming like Jesus, which is a process. But justification, it, righteousness is not in, infused into us. It is imputed. It is credited to us. It's as if everything that Jesus has access to, we now have access to. It's his standing before God is the standing that we have. In the gospel, because Jesus' righteousness is credited to us, we are declared justified in an instant. Again, it's not that I became righteous enough that God declares me righteous. It's that while I'm still sinful, God declares me righteous because of my faith in Jesus. This was pictured in the Old Testament process of sacrifice, that once a year, um, each believing family would bring a lamb, a perfect unblemished lamb, and they would place it on the altar, they'd place their hands on it, and they'd remember that their sins were imputed to this lamb. And at that moment, they were justified. In that moment, the, the lamb was held responsible, and they walked out free. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, that on the cross, the entire human race were laid, our sins were laid on Jesus's head. A reformer said this, he said, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David, the murderer. You will become Adam, the sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. You will become the husband who has neglected or abused his family. You'll become the liar or the addict or the hypocrite living a double life, the selfish, the proud. He became those things and died for them so that I could be innocent of them, so that you could be innocent of your sins, that you could be made righteous. And there was a phrase that was popularized during that time of the Reformation, and it described what a justified person is. And it's a Latin phrase, it's simul justus et peccator, okay, uh, simul S-I-M-U-L, so think simultaneously. And the idea is that at the same time, we are righteous and sinful, which shouldn't make any sense. That in and of myself, I am a sinner, but at the same time, I am righteous because of Jesus' righteousness, Again, it's not that I become righteous enough that he declares me righteous. It's that while I was still a sinner, God declared me righteous because Jesus' righteousness is given to me, this great exchange. And so to be justified means we have the same status in the eyes of God as Jesus himself did. Not because we are perfect, but because he has credited his his perfection to us. Now, how does God do that? How is that just? Here's the other question. How is that just? Just. Things that are wrong need to be punished. A good God has to be a just God. How does God make us right and still be just? And the answer is in the death of Jesus on the cross and in his following resurrection. We'll pick up in in verse 25. It says, God presented him, that him is Jesus, as the mercy seat or as a sacrifice, okay? By his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Uh, one commentator described these verses this way. says, there is a barrier. The word through in verses 24 and 25 showed that there is a barrier between God and us when it comes to forgiveness. Only the blood of Christ creates a door through that barrier. Only through Jesus' death can God give us this gift. These verses clearly teach the existence of this obstacle, and it is critical we understand it. During this century especially, it has been commonly taught that because God is love, all he has to do is merely say or pronounce that we are forgiven. The reasoning goes this way. If my child had done something wrong and says, I'm sorry, well, I simply say, that's okay, and we are reconciled. Why can't God just do the same? Why is there a need for Jesus' death? In this theory, Jesus only comes into the world to tell us God loves us, and that his death on the cross is merely an example of sacrificial love designed to move us. But here we see what that barrier is. The barrier to just saying, "Ah, I forgive you. We all learned a good lesson. You know, let's go. Let's keep playing." Uh, like a parent, is his justice. The death of Christ was necessary to satisfy his justice. The problem with the illustration of the parent and the child is that the relationship depicted is too simplistic. God's relationship with us is more complex. He is not only the fatherly one who loves us. He wants to justify us. He wants us to be right with him. He wants to redeem all things but he also is the judge and king of the universe. Author, one author said that, once in a courtroom, I heard a person being sentenced for a crime. On the one hand, a crime had been committed and the person had to pay. Just as the judge was giving the sentence, a middle-aged man suddenly broke into racking sobs. He was clearly the father of the person on trial. This was somebody's child grown up, a child still adored and treasured by a father. Even the judge paused, but he had his job to do and resumed sentencing. The judge's job is to bring justice and to sentence. The parent's heart is to long to stand in for the child. This is hard, right, because he loves us and we are guilty. Rebecca McLaughlin, um, in her book, a phenomenal book, Confronting Christianity, she said this. She says, it has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts today? <laughs> if you're not laughing, you're just, you're, you're really holy. Or you're really guilty, eh? You're like, oh. <laughs> my marriage would die. My children would be crushed. My friends would leave. My thoughts are not all bad. Many are good and kind and true. But like a bag of flour infested by maggots, no part of me is pure. This dawned on Alexander Sultanhain as he was lying on rotting straw in a Soviet Gulgag, Gulgag prison. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states or nations or classes, nor between political parties either the line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. That we are able to do beautiful, wonderful things and we are able to do terrible, awful things. And so God longs to reconcile with us, but he must uphold his justice. And this leads to another important idea we have to define, this idea of a mercy seat or atoning sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice means that God poured out on Jesus the righteous justice he had towards us. And kind of contrary to what progressive theologians might say today, God's righteous anger towards sin is not a contradiction with his love, but a necessary partner with it. Here's what I mean. If you love someone, you hate the things that destroy them. If you love the cancer patient, you hate the cancer that destroys them. If you love this world, you will hate what destroys this world. And so that's how God feels about our sin. Sin destroys his creation and the glory and righteousness, which are the foundation of the universe, turns love to hate, life to death. And so he hates sin. He's angry with it. But again, it creates predicament. How does God rescue sinners he loves from sin, from the sin he hates, without destroying them? And that, that moves us to verse 26. Paul says, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time so that he would be just And justify the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross, God was able to accomplish two things that seem like they might be in contradiction. God's justice was satisfied, His righteousness was upheld. There is no wrong that anyone ever actually gets away with. Either we will pay or Jesus pays in our place. So His justice was satisfied, but His love was also offered. Reconciliation was offered. Again, for God to be righteous, sin had to be punished. And people might say, man, why couldn't God just forgive it? You know, why couldn't God say, you know, no big deal? But again, um, um, people who who say that there's no payment needed or no penalty needed for sin um, often have never really suffered at the hands of another. You only say that if you've never um, experienced abuse or discrimination or deep betrayal or, or true injustice. You want justice. If you've seen, if you are someone you love, Has been hurt deeply. The cross was not just Jesus showing us God's love; He was taking the place of our penalty. He He made a way for us to be reconciled again. For any relationship that has experienced a fracture to be made right, it involves someone forgiving and absorbing what the other did to them. This is true in small ways, right? If, for example, um, I've talked about this before. Um, If you If you borrowed my car and you um, you borrowed my car and then you decided to to get drunk and crash it, right? Um, hopefully, you're, let's say you're okay, by the way, right? My, cra- my car is totaled. You're supposed to be my friend. You did this. Um, in that moment, right, if you think about uh, what happened, um, either you will go, hey, I'm going to pay the penalty for this, although you don't seem like the type of responsible person who would, who would follow up and pay, right? Um, or I could take you to court to make you pay. Or I could forgive you and forgive the debt and say, you know what, um, I will pay, but what's not an option is to, to re- reverse the damage and act like it didn't happen. The damage is there, it costs something. The question is, who's going to pay? Does that make sense? It's the same thing in a relationship. If you've been betrayed, uh, if your spouse uh, committed adultery or something like that, there's the reality that you could get them back and go do the same thing. There's the reality that you could, um, you know, you're, I'm going to make you pay and take you to court. Um, or there's a forgiveness um, that goes, hey, I'm not going to do the same thing to you and I'm, choo- right? I'm not, I'm not going to get revenge. Uh, I'm going to choose to uh, absorb. What, what, what I can't do is undo what happened. There's a pain. The only way that this relationship can move forward is if I choose to forgive this debt, this thing that you did that was your fault, that was wrong. I'm choosing to not make you pay. And so again, for any relationship that it's experienced, a fracture to be made right involves someone forgiving and absorbing what the other did to make that fracture happen in the first place. It involves stopping the game of trying to get even. And in Jesus, God extends his hand to us. He says, I paid a tremendous price to reconcile this relationship. I've absorbed the consequences of what you have done. I will no longer treat you as though you are guilty. I will treat you as if you have lived the perfect life of my son. His righteousness has been credited to you if you ask him to make what he did on the cross count for you. Um, when a couple gets married, uh, unless they sign a prenup, which historically didn't exist, they immediately would have access to each other's resources and debts, which is kind of wild. And so if you're in a ton of debt and you get married, your, your spouse now takes on that debt, right? However, if you, if you get married and your spouse has a ton of assets and resources, then when you get married, you have access to those resources. Um, you don't get married and then work to prove you are worthy of their stuff. It, it's credited to you. By uniting to them, by trusting them, uh, by entering into relationship with them, you have access. Um, the Reformers often picked up this theme. Michael, Reeve, Michael Reeves, an author, describes it this way. He says, one way that the Reformers uh, would tell the gospel was as the story of a king representing Jesus, marrying a poor girl of ill repute, representing us. At their wedding, she would say to him, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. And that moment she shares with him all her debts and shame. Then the king would reply, "All that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you, at which the wretched girl becomes the queen, and all the kingdom is hers." Just so our great bridegroom, just so our, our great bridegroom has taken all our sin, our death, our judgment, and he shares with us all his life and perfect righteousness. He has become poor that we might share his riches. It is the great marriage swap, or what Luther called the joyful exchange. Christ is one with his people, and so all that is theirs is his, which he took upon himself on the cross, and all that is his is theirs. We are not guilty anymore, friends. We have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. If you have never done that, by the way, we'd love to chat to you about that if you want to explore what a relationship with God would look like through Jesus. But faith is saying, I do to Jesus. I trust Jesus to share with me and provide for me what I cannot provide for myself. In the history of the church, there cannot be more than a thousand people that have preached an Easter sermon through planes uh, flying that close. Yeah, it's an honor to be here, you guys. This is faith. Faith is saying we trust that He lived perfectly, and that He was a perfect, that He had a perfect standing in relation with God, that He's willing to share with us, and if we trust Him to make us right with God, and give up trying to do it ourselves. We will be made right with him. He died and rose again to justify us, to reconcile us to God. We don't deserve it, but we have been justified. He does not deal with you according to what your sins deserve. Christianity is not a faith that's designed to make you feel guilty. It's the opposite. He took it all away. He threw your sins into the bottom of the sea, the Psalms say. As far as the east is from the west, you have been declared righteous This is what justification is all about. Do you really believe that you are right with God? That your identity now is loved, accepted, righteous one. There's no anger or judgment coming towards you anymore. He he poured out all his judgment on Jesus on the cross. What is left for you is reconciliation. Many of us claim to be followers of Jesus, yet we live with a vague sense of guilt, disapproval and fear, Again, your sin was paid for by Jesus. And he didn't just die to forgive you. Again, he died to justify you, to make you right. One old school English theologian described the difference between forgiveness and justification this way. He said, forgiveness says, you may go. You've been released from your penalty, right? Kind of the prison guard is taking the prisoner to the, the, the gate. It opens. They give him like $10 and say, get out of here. Justification says, I want you to stay. You are welcome to all my love and presence. Come home with me. Be with me. Family, we've been reconciled to the God of the universe. He knows you. He loves you. He has taken your guilt away. He pursues you. This means you are not alone in this world. We have a Savior who has come for us. He lived for you. He died for you. Yes, on Easter we remember that he rose for you. And so Jesus came for you that you might be reconciled. Have you come to him? I want to call the worship team up right now, and we're going to take communion. And communion is one of the ways that we remember Jesus, Jesus himself taught, that we can come to him in faith, remembering I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you and I'm remembering, that, that, I'm remembering it, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm gratefully remembering what you did on the cross for me and how you rose again in victory for me to do something for me. Again, he has come for us have we come to him. What I want to say this morning is, um, if, you've, if, you've, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, you would say, man, I, I've never put my faith in Jesus. We ask that you you wouldn't take uh, communion, uh, and that's not to exclude you. By the way, if you want to take communion for the first time today, uh, we'd love to do that. Uh, you just, again, it's, it's something that's designed for those who have already put their faith in Jesus to remember what he did for them. So we don't want to make you do something you don't actually believe, Um, we don't want to water down what what we believe either. And so we want to, um, uh, if you want to do that, by the way, and put your faith in Jesus, um, we can talk about that, and and, and we'd love to see that happen. So like, actually, I do want to trust in Jesus. I want want to put my faith in him. Um, But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, um, I want to take a moment, um, uh, if you just close your eyes for a second, and get your communion stuff ready. This idea of coming to Jesus feels like such an important one. Jesus, thank you that you came for us. Thank you that you longed to be with us. Thank you that it brings you joy to be reconciled to us that you long to heal you long to heal us from our, our selfishness. You long to live us from a dead-end life of just living for ourself, where it's never enough. We never feel loved enough. We never have enough money. We never have uh, enough friends. We, we, we never feel like we matter. We never feel right. Not only with you, but with anyone else or even with ourselves that you've come to do for us what we could not do, that you've made us right with God and that being right with God changes everything. I want to praise uh, for those who, who, who do walk in, in guilt and shame um, who maybe feel the weight of, um, man, I'm just not good enough. It's, it's as if they have forgotten this reality that they're not good enough, but, but they've been made righteous. Even as they're not good enough, they're righteous through Jesus they are, they are more than good enough, they carry your righteousness and your reputation, and so Jesus, would you, um, through the power of your spirit, would you welcome us into your, into your presence in a fresh way, think of you saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your, your soul, for many of us, we've been trying to justify ourselves to ourselves. We've been trying to prove ourselves to others. We've been trying to earn your love and, and, and trying to earn our justification, trying to earn identity that never works. But Lord, would we remember the fact that you offer us freely what we could not provide for ourselves in your cross and in your resurrection. So thank you for that. It's your name we pray. Amen. guys can take the. Um, the wafer and the, the juice and before we um, sing um, you guys can't stand by the way